everyone, I'm Gary Hoban and welcome to Refinery Life Church Australia and welcome to another Tuesday night teaching. We're so glad that you could join us again. You know, if you're looking for a new church, we'd love you to come and join us. There's only two things you should really be looking for in a church and that's, are the people friendly and do they preach the word of the Lord? You know, we don't need to worry about kids' programs and what the next best thing is, but if the church is friendly and they're teaching the word, that's where you need to be. So if you're interested and you're looking for a new home, come and join us at 9.30 on Sundays at 23 T.E. Peters Drive at Broadbeach. We'd love to see you there. But before we go any further, join me in the Lord's Prayer. Because it's important. When the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray, he said, pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Such a simple prayer, isn't it? Such a simple prayer. You know, the Old Testament prophets were primarily foretellers rather than foretellers. They communicated the message of God to the needs of the day. That's what our prophets should be doing now. And listen to the major message of the minor prophets is the title of the series we're working through for the next little while. And today we're talking about Nahum and woe to the bloody city. The text we're concentrating on is Nahum 3.1. It says, the woe of Nineveh. Now you notice a lot of these Old Testament prophets, they're, they're talking about Nineveh. The 3.1 says, woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. And the scriptures we're working through now, there's quite a few, so bear with me as we read through them. If we have your Bible with you, if you've got your Bible with you, open it up. We're going to look at Nahum 2.8 through to 3.7. says, though Nineveh was old, sorry, sorry, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, how they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, and no one turns back. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Every pain is in every side. And all their faces are drained of color. We're in verse 11 now. There is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion walked and the lioness and lion's cub and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Then we talk about the woe of Nineveh in verse 3.1. Woe to the bloody city, it's all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses and clattering chariots. This is a warning, people. Verse 3, horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, the great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Verse 4. Because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, 
who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. He said that twice now, hasn't he? I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? long piece of scripture, but what a prophecy that is. Let's break it down a little bit today. Let's break it down. Nineveh's destruction was so complete that even the site was forgotten. This was a real city, but it was forgotten. It so completely had been destroyed that all traces of the glory of the Assyrian Empire had disappeared. That so many scholars actually thought the references of it to it in the Bible and in ancient histories were mythical. They didn't actually believe it existed to start with. They thought that in reality no such city or empire existed. It was not until 1854 that the site was definitely identified and the ruins began to be uncovered. And Nahum seems to have committed to self-concealment. And in this he fairly well succeeds. He hid himself away. You know, there's many ministers around the world that actually don't advertise what they do. They don't need the platforms. They don't need the spotlights. They just do what God said, quietly, often in the background, making huge change. We're not told of Nahum's family or his tribe or even his nation, though it's undoubtedly, it's undoubted that he's from Judah. He wrote sometime between 663 BC when Assyria conquered Egypt and 609 BC when Assyria was defeated by Babylon. That was the time he was in. And this was perhaps a hundred years after Jonah had delivered God's message to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Remember Jonah? We spoke about him a few weeks ago. The prophecy of Nahum is given to one subject alone, the destruction of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which is used as an example for the entire nation. For the most part, this prophecy is pure poetry. It can be summed up in five words. Woe to the bloody city. That's pretty well the whole prophecy right there. Unlike others among the prophets, Nahum had no word to say about Judah's sins. His only reference to Judah were the words of encouragement for the destruction of Nineveh. Would mean deliverance for Judah. It's the only time he mentioned them. In language that is forcible and graphic, the prophet's descriptions are condensed and they're brilliant. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets straight to the point. Chapter 1 consists of a question and its answer. The question is, who can stand before God's indignation? And the answer is, he will make an utter end of the enemies of his people. Chapter 2 is made up of a threefold description. The siege and defense of the city. The capture and the sacking of the city. And the prophet's exaltation over the destruction of the ancient den of lions meaning the king and all of his mates. Ancient den of lions. Chapter 3 is constructed, at least by implication, around four questions. Who will mourn the fallen Nineveh? Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense and the waters were her walls. And Nahum wrote 
that the surrounding nations would rejoice when Nineveh fell. He declared, all who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? There's some countries around the world that we're going to feel this again. The book of Nahum is no mere cry for joy over the ruin of Israel's enemy, though. Nahum is not simply a nationalist exulting over the ruin of his nation's oppression. He's a prophet with a prophet's deep conviction that the power of God is ruling in all the turmoil in history. Everything that's happening in the world today, the power of God is still ruling. This is a hymn of praise for a great manifestation of the power and justice and mercy of the true God. What then has this little book got to say to us in our day? Many people will overlook the minor prophets because they're short little books and think, yeah, that's Old Testament times. But they still speak to us today. But three things are clear. The military is not the way to solve the problems of history. Thebes was destroyed by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were destroyed by the Babylonians and their allies. And the Babylonians were destroyed by the Persians. And so it goes on. When Peter attempted to defend the Lord with his sword, Jesus warned him, didn't he, in Matthew 26, 52. Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Whenever a mighty nation becoming rich and powerful by violating the principles of justice, freedom and right has appeared on the stage of history, this principle has been demonstrated. Think of the empires of the Caesars or of Charlemagne or Napoleon. They had the elements of decay at the core, even at the hour of their brutality and bloodshed. They were failing. Their end was inevitable. By military might and tyranny among his own people, Adolf Hitler brought into being his third Reich, which he predicted would stand a thousand years. But then he committed suicide. What he brought in was actually going to be his destruction. Think about this. There's some prime ministers and presidents that need to be seeing this and hearing this. What you're bringing in against the people is going to be your destruction. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, I will call you out. What you're doing to your country will be your destruction. Woe to the bloody city. Napoleon, who covered Europe in blood for nearly two decades, met his end at Waterloo. Genghis Khan conquered Mongolia and most of China, followed by conquests of Turkey, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan. He even penetrated southeastern Europe. His successors extended their power over the whole of China and Persia and most of Russia. Didn't end well for him, though, did it? He still died. Militarism creates most of the problems of history and it solves none. We always hear people say religion causes all these problems, it causes wars. That is not true. Trying to solve the world's problems by war is like trying to arrange the furniture in your house with dynamite. It doesn't work. Second thing is tyranny ultimately recruits the opposition by which it will be destroyed. These countries that are locking their citizens down and forcing them to not have work and that sort of thing at the moment, that tyranny is what will destroy you. The people will stand up eventually. Nineveh was really a complex of four cities in one. Remember, it used to take three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. It was huge. 
and it was protected by the confluence of two rivers and a system of moats. It had a 30-metre-high wall, wide enough for three chariots to be driven side by side and fortified with 1,500 towers, each 60 metres high. The whole area covered over 900 square kilometres. This was a big city. But the vastness of Nineveh was overshadowed by its wickedness. Nineveh's brutality towards the victims of its conquest was enough to make the blood run cold. They were disgusting people. Surrounding people shuddered with the horror at the thought of ever being prey to Nineveh. Its mania for blood and savagery was gruesome. And Nahum confirmed this as he exposed the violence and he exposed the murder, the witchcraft, the prostitution, the vile corruption within that harlot city. God's word to Nineveh was, I will dig your grave, for you are vile. That's something none of us want to hear God say to us. How would he do this? By recruiting those who had been oppressed by the bloody city. By recruiting those who had been oppressed by Nineveh. A combined policy on the part of those who had been humiliated by the Assyrian conquerors brought about Nineveh's downfall. The enemy surrounded Nineveh, but at first they were driven back. Reinforcements came, and the city was again attacked, and the siege lasted two years. But a new foe against who they were powerless had to be reckoned with, didn't it? Nahum 2.6 says, the, river, the gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. The Tigris River flooded and swept away large sections of the city walls. That's only God does that. He controls the weather. When the flood subsided, the enemy crossed the river and poured through the gap into the city, and Nineveh was no more. It was wiped out then and there. Page after page of history demonstrates the truth that tyranny ultimately recruits opposition by which it is destroyed. Now we're seeing close to 2 million people in Canberra, the Australian capital a couple of weeks ago, protesting, happily protesting, non-violent protests, saying enough is enough. The third thing is God is the sole ruler of the universe. I'm so sick and tired of people saying the universe did this or the universe did that. The universe did nothing. God made it. Nahum declared God's sovereignty and strength. God is jealous of his holy name, recompensing the wrongdoer and preparing to vent his wrath on his adversaries. Although slow to anger, his forgiveness is often scorned by some. Yet he would by no means clear the guilty. The guilty will be judged. The fact of his omnipotence is beyond controversy. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's all-seeing. Judah had suffered intensely at the hands of Assyria. Some godly men felt that Jehovah was no longer interested in Judah's welfare. Or if he was, he was powerless to restrain the ferocity of the Syrian aggression. Nahum was convinced that neither was the case, though. Nineveh was at the peak of his power, or its power, and the peak of its splendor. The earth rang with the shouts of Nineveh's armored men as they ransacked cities and enslaved people. But could Nineveh defy Jehovah without being punished? Could the moral law be set aside indefinitely? God had not abdicated. 
nor had his laws become inoperative. The sentence had already been pronounced. Judgment would surely fall upon the ruthless oppressor. In spite of its wealth, display of military power, and strategy of its monarchs and statesmen, it will be overtaken by the righteous anger of the Most High. Amen. All of the minor prophets, of all of them, not one seems to equal the fire and spiritual boldness of Nahum. Let the people of today take a good look at Nineveh of long ago, for it is one of God's special lessons to the rulers and the nations and the people. The same God rules the world today. Nahum speaks of the universal voice of humanity. Let me tell you, there's some countries that are in for a whole world of pain coming up. Let all people hear and be aware. In this prophecy, there's comfort for the godly. We're finishing up now. There's comfort for the godly here. Nineveh proclaims to us the final vindication of right against wrong. And herein is the comfort. God's government is righteous. He is the stronghold of the godly. Nahum's doom song to Nineveh is no mere human cry for revenge, nor does it view Nineveh's coming destruction with patriotic gratification from a standpoint of his own nation and countrymen. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not taking pleasure in this. The predicted result is viewed solely from the requirement of divine justice. Let's look at Genesis 18.25. We're reading from the King James Version here. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. That's a warning to some people. And as I do every week, I want to encourage you to be diligent with your Bible study time. Because God has so much more for us that we can get from just going to church once or twice a week and hearing someone else talk about the Word. When you spend time with God, your life will change in amazing ways because God is a Redeemer. There's nothing that's too hard for Him. And if you allow Him, He can make you whole, spirit, soul, and body. And you're important to God. You know that already. But you're also important to us at the refinery. So when it comes to prayer, we believe that God wants to meet your needs and reveal his promises directly to you. So whatever you're concerned about and need prayer for, we want to be here for you. Even if you just want to say hi, you can contact us on www.refinerylife.org or via any of our social media channels. And we're believing 2022, this year, is going to be a year of repentance and blessing. So if you want us to be seeing these blessings, it's time to start repenting. You don't need to repent to me. You need to repent to the Lord. And until next time, stay in the blessing.